The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Esther. Uh, It's going to be a brief series, just looking for a few weeks at this uh, really fascinating book. And so the title of the message for this morning is On Mission with God. We're looking at chapters 3 and 4. And so like I did last week, we're not going to do a single scripture reading before the message, but we want to take a look at the portions of scripture we're going to be focusing on over the course of the message itself. So let's pray and uh, turn to God as we turn to his word. Lord, we want to be students of your word, uh, and so we ask you that you would speak to us through your word. Um, We have our own wisdom, we have our own thoughts, uh, our own opinions, but what we need is your truth to cut through all of that and to lead us and to show us your wisdom, your heart toward us. And so open our eyes to see how you spoke into the life of this uh, young woman, Esther, and how you moved in her life, in her day, so that we can understand what it means for our life in this season, in this day. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Um, Last week, we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and uh, we saw the foolishness of this King Xerxes, uh, who ended up with this six-month-long party in honor of himself, um, sort of culminating in this week-long feast, and in his drunkenness, ends up losing his queen, Vashti. And surrounded by this cast of fools, the king agrees to this plan to um, capture all of the young and beautiful virgins in his empire so that one by one he can bed every single one of them until he finds a girl that he likes. And because of her beauty, a young Jewish orphan named Esther is swept up in this drama and becomes a part of the king's harem. And all of this sounds more like a sense, the senselessness of a soap opera, doesn't it? Than some kind of purposeful unfolding of God's story. As a Jew, as an orphan, and as a woman, Esther's life could basically be summed up by these themes of, of suffering and abuse. Um, she had a hard life, and it wasn't getting a whole lot easier. No, not only that, but... Esther herself seems to be going through her own identity crisis. Um, Not, you know, when we look at that period of the exile, we see people like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they took a stand in this evil system that they were a part of to say, we won't compromise. We won't be like these pagans. We're going to stand firm as the people of God. But you kind of look carefully, it doesn't really seem like Esther is doing that. It seems like Esther is playing along with the system and working the angles and trying to make a way for herself. And it's sort of in all of this messiness that we are asked to wonder, how does God accomplish his will in all of this? Um, As I pointed out in the last week's message, one of the main themes of this book of Esther is the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. 
In the entire book, as I said, God's name is never mentioned even once. And yet, one of the most powerful conclusions that we're marching to by looking at this book of Esther is that even in the seeming chaos and compromise of a broken world, God is still in control. In a world that is filled with evil and sin, God is in control. Even in a world in which we ourselves find moments of compromise and struggle, God is still in control. You know, when we invoke the sovereignty of God, it doesn't mean that everything is always going to go our way. It doesn't mean that God is like a divine Santa Claus, just waiting to shower us with everything that we want according to our own will. But it does mean that in what appears to be the randomness and the chaos of life, there is purpose, there is meaning. It means that nothing can happen to me unless God allows it. And that's an invitation that we're all given to discover in this journey in life. Nothing is random. Nothing is meaningless. So despite the hundreds, if not thousands, of young virgins that are gathered throughout the Persian Empire, of all of these women, King Xerxes chooses Esther to be his queen. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So now this young orphan girl becomes queen over the most powerful empire in the world. As we pick up the story in chapter 3, quite a bit of time has actually passed, although it's hard to tell from the reading of the story itself. But most scholars believe that between chapter 2 and chapter 3, about five years have passed now since Esther has become queen. And in this intervening time, toward the end of chapter 2, a couple of events happen that are going to be more significant later in the story. We find out that Mordecai, her cousin, actually uncovers an assassination plot against King Xerxes and ends up saving his life. But at least at that point, there was no credit given to him. There's no reward or anything. Uh, Really, as far as we know, nothing really amounts to it. But one of the things we do find out is that he sits at the king's gate. Now, in those days, when we talk about a gate, what it meant was it was a, a meeting place where officials and elders and other important people would gather to discuss important matters, or even it became like a a court system where uh, people would adjudicate over various legal matters and things like that. And so what it basically means is that Mordecai must have been given some kind of a position in the king's court or something along those lines. So as we get to chapter 3, we're introduced to this pretty evil guy who's going to turn out to be the villain in this story, a man by the name of Haman. And so in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3, it says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Haman was promoted to the highest position in the empire, second only to the king himself. We're also told that this guy Haman was son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, an Agagite is the same as an Amalekite. They're just two different names for the same type of people. Okay? 
And if you remember your history, the Amalekites were the ones that attacked the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, out of slavery, led by Moses, into the Sinai Desert. Um, I actually had an opportunity to visit the place where that battle took place. It's an area in the Sinai Desert called Rephidim. If you remember that battle, this is where Moses raised his hand, and as long as his hands were raised, the Israelite armies were winning the battle. But after a while, his arms got so tired that they kept drooping down. And every time his arms drooped down, the Israelites would start losing. And so the battle was going back and forth based on uh, basically, you know, Moses' arm strength, you know. And eventually, the Israelites got so frustrated that they sent Aaron and her up to the top of this hill. And they each took one of Moses' arms and they held it up there until they finally won the battle. Well, you know, God never forgot what the Amalekites did to his people that day. And so he put a curse on the Amalekites. It's interesting that years later, when Israel finally got their first king, King Saul, he ordered King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites and to kill King Agag, who was their leader at the time. But Saul disobeyed, and he spared King Agag's life. And so Samuel the prophet ended up killing King Agag Agag himself. So this is the history here, and now you fast forward hundreds of years, and you find a Jewish queen on the throne, and a descendant of this king of Agag, an Amalekite, in the second highest position in the Persian Empire. As mortal enemies, Mordecai cannot bring himself to bow to this guy Haman, this Amalekite. And so in verses 5 to 6, it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. We begin to get a sense of the kind of man Haman is. Enraged by Mordecai's disrespectful attitude, he becomes determined to wipe out every single Jew in Persia in one singular massive act of genocide. In verses 8 to 11, it says, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Um, we're building a character profile of this guy Xerxes, and it's not a very good one, is it? Um, Basically, his prime minister asks him to wipe out an entire nation of people within his empire. And he treats it as if he's the parent of a teenager asking to borrow the car, you know? Basically says, yeah, whatever, do whatever you want. I don't really care. Wipe them out, kill them all. In verses 12 to 15, it says, Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. 
They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the city of Citadel. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So this message goes out 11 months from now. Everyone gear up to wipe out these people called the Jews. And it says the entire empire basically is thrown in this chaos because no one understands why this command was given. It's just crazy to wipe out this entire group of people. And yet this, again, signifies what kind of a man this King Xerxes was, that he's oblivious to this. He's clueless. All he is is sitting in the palace, once again at a party, drinking wine while his kingdom is in chaos. We turn then to chapter 4 in verses 1 to 3, and it says this. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You can imagine what kind of a terrifying announcement this must have been to every Jew living in Persia to know that a date 11 months from then had been designated in which they were to be exterminated. And that preparations in every village, in every town, by your own coworkers, by your own neighbors, was to be made to get ready for that day, to have a clean, efficient execution of every Jew, man, woman, and child, old or young. And so not surprisingly, the Jews, when they hear this decree from the king, begin wailing and weeping and crying out. And that's what Esther's cousin Mordecai does. What's interesting is that living in the palace in the king's harem as the queen, Esther is utterly oblivious to what's going on. She, she doesn't know this crisis, what's happening. But she finds out that her cousin Mordecai is out at the city gate, at the palace gate, and he's in sackcloth and ashes, and he's weeping. So she sends for him. She sends a change of clothes and says, come and tell me what's going on. But Mordecai refuses and says, I'm not taking off the sackcloth and ashes for you. And so in verses 5 to 8, it says, Then Esther summoned Hethak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tender, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hethak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. 
He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai, in in essence, explains everything to Esther and he says, go to the king, go to your husband and plead on behalf of your people that our lives might be spared. It's interesting that up to this point in the story, Esther is basically a silent character. She doesn't speak at all. She is basically like a silent pawn in a chess game. She is nothing more than a victim of forces that are larger than her. And we're told that she basically obeys everything that her cousin Mordecai tells her to do. Do this, Esther. Do that. And she just quietly obeys. But for the first time, we actually hear Esther's voice in the story. And for the first time, she doesn't listen to her cousin Mordecai. She exerts her own will in the situation. Verses 9 to 11, it says, Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. In essence, what Esther tells her cousin Mordecai is, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. I'm powerless here. You see, not even the queen approaches the king uninvited. It's a capital crime. Not only that, but What in essence, I think Esther was saying to Mordecai was, this is a law sealed by the king's own signet ring. How in the world is he going to reverse that? To do so would make him look like a fool to the entire empire. And then she adds this other detail and says, you know, it's been a month since he's even wanted me near him. Um, There's this interesting little detail given to us in Esther chapter 2, verse 19, that says, When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the gate. That's interesting. What this means is that after Esther became queen, after Esther became queen, King Xerxes rounded up another group of virgins. In other words, I think he had such a good time the first round that he decided to do it again. I think what I'm trying to say here is I don't think Xerxes was a one-woman man, okay? He had needs. And I don't think Esther alone fulfilled those needs for him. And so, basically, I think Esther was wondering, it's been a month since he wanted me. And I don't think he was alone all those nights by himself. And I think she was wondering, maybe I've fallen out of favor with him. Maybe he's fallen in love with another woman. I don't know. Maybe I just don't satisfy him. Basically, Esther is replying to Mordecai, it's impossible. You're asking me to commit suicide if you ask me to go to the king. Now, while Esther might have thought that her argument was pretty airtight, Mordecai's reply totally reshapes Esther's view of the situation. 
In verses 12 to 14, it says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this. First, Mordecai rebukes Esther because he says basically to her, you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten where you came from. You see, for over five years, Esther has been hiding her Jewish identity in the Persian court of the king. And now living in the lap of luxury in the palace, I think the truth is those days of being a poor Jewish orphan were in the rearview mirror, and they were like a distant memory. And so now in the midst of this crisis that, exi- that threatened the very existence of her own people, I think all she was thinking about was her own self-preservation. And I think what Esther realized is, if I just keep my mouth shut and don't say anything, don't make waves, and if I distance myself from my people, then at least I can survive this horrible massacre that is about to happen to the Israelites. But I I think more importantly than saying you've forgotten where you came from, I think what Mordecai is pointing out to Esther is, you're missing the whole point of your destiny. Mordecai was essentially asking Esther, of all the thousands of women that the king could have chosen, why you? Why you? Do you think it was dumb luck? Do you think it was because you were the prettiest girl in the entire empire? Well, then I think what Mordecai is saying is, if it is in fact God's hand that made you queen, why did he do it? Was it just so you could live in luxury in the king's palace while the rest of your people are exterminated? In other words, what Mordecai was saying is, don't you realize that the whole trajectory of your life was for this singular moment and you're about to miss it. You're about to miss the whole point of your life. God placed you as the queen because he wanted to use you to save his people. In other words, what Mordecai was telling Esther was, this is your defining moment. This is your defining moment. A moment of clarity, giving you an opportunity to understand the purpose of everything that has happened in your life up to now. You see, because I think the truth is for Esther, the win was that she beat all the odds. She became queen. That was the victory. That was the point. That was the goal, to become queen. You know, for Esther to become queen was like the truth. It was like winning the lottery. And, you know, when we read the story of Esther, just, you know, from a human perspective, I mean, we all want to root for her, don't we? We love stories like Esther, these rags-to-riches stories, right? It's hard not to be happy for her. She was this poor orphan girl who had nothing, and overnight, she became the most powerful woman in the entire known world. I mean, that's the American dream. And the truth is, I think that's our dream, isn't it? 
I think like Esther, a lot of Christians struggle with our own identity crisis. I think the truth is, surrounded by all that America has to offer, it's so easy to forget who we are as God's people, that we are set apart for a different purpose, a different mission in our lives. What I'm saying is, is this. We cannot separate God's sovereignty and God's mission. In other words, if you believe that God is in control of everything and that he has arranged all of the circumstances of your life, that it isn't all randomness or accident, then the obvious question that needs to be asked of all of our lives is what is his purpose? What is God about in my life? What is he trying to accomplish? You see, the goal of life isn't to always escape a difficult situation or to always get to greener pastures. Instead, our focus should be, why has God placed me in this particular place for such a time as this? Why are you living next to the particular family that you're living next to right now in your neighborhood? Why are you working alongside the particular coworkers that are in your company, in your business, in this moment in life? Why did you cross paths with this particular person? How might God want to use you in that person's life? These are the questions that Esther was not asking of her destiny, that Mordecai was pointing her to. Listen, on a regular basis, my inbox as a pastor is filled with prayer requests, upcoming exams, upcoming job interviews, prayer that the loan goes through for your home purchase. And I'm more than glad as your pastor pray on your behalf for those things. In fact, I make it a habit that every time I get an email or a text like that, I stop whatever I'm doing right then and pray about that issue. Because I know all too well for myself, if I try to say I'm going to get to it, I may not get to it. And really try to pray right then in that moment. But all of this prayer for me as your pastor begs a deeper question. What is all this for? Why? Is it just so that ICC can be the most upwardly mobile, healthiest, most blessed church? Is that what it's all about? That's what was happening in Esther's life in that moment. Hey, I made it. I won. God is with me. I'm queen. And Mordecai said, but why are you queen? Why did you win the lottery? Why have you been so incredibly blessed by him? There is this interesting contrast in the book of Esther between feasting and fasting. The story began with a feast, didn't it? That King Xerxes held in honor of his own glory. In the second chapter, there was another feast held in honor of Esther, who had just become queen. Before the story ends, there are going to be several more feasts in this story. But in contrast to these feasts, in chapter 4, we find the theme of fasting. A 
of fasting. And I believe that there is a message in this contrast for us, and it is this. While the world is feasting, indulging in pleasure, the people of God are fasting, seeking something deeper. You see, people feast when they're content with their lives, don't they? But people fast when they're discontent with the way things are. Hungering that God would work more than we hunger for food. Let's just be honest. Humanly speaking, which group do you want to be a part of? I'd rather be with the feasters than the fasters, to be honest with you. And I think the truth is that that was the same for Esther. Hey, I'm the feasting crowd now. I don't have to fast. I made it. And yet, Mordecai was challenging Esther. You've forgotten who you are. You need to get back with your people in the company of the fasters and join us in crying out to God. It is so easy to get sucked into this lifestyle of feasting, isn't it? I mean, as I was praying about this message and thinking about our church, I think that's the season that many of you are in terms of life stage. You know, many of you have sort of moved beyond the entry-level jobs that you were struggling in for years. And now you're making some real money, you know? And you've moved out of your starter home into something more respectable. You've stopped shopping at Ikea, (laughs) and you actually have some real furniture in your house now. And as you continue down this road, it's so easy to lose a sense of a higher purpose. It's all about what you want out of life, isn't it? The pursuit of the next dream that you want to fulfill. And the truth is maybe for some of you, you're not there yet, but that's the promised land, isn't it? One day, I'm going to upgrade from Ikea, (laughs) and I'm not going to have to assemble my own furniture, but it's going to be delivered on a truck. And I wonder if this describes your life. If somewhere along the journey you've lost your way. And like Esther, maybe you need a wake-up call and hear Mordecai's message. Don't forget who you are. You are the people of God called to something more than just living for yourselves and for the next dream that you want to fulfill in your life. The story goes on in verses 15 to 17. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is Esther in her power, right? Everything up to this point is Esther listening to Mordecai like an obedient puppy. And now the strength of Esther rises and says, Mordecai, I'm going to tell you what to do. 
Go gather all of our people and tell them to fast for me. And I am going to go before the king. After hearing Mordecai's rebuke, Esther finally comes to her senses. It's in essence as if all of the drama and the craziness of chapter 1 and 2 begins to finally make sense to her. It seemed like she was just a helpless pawn in this random and senseless game being played by men who are much more powerful than she. But now things come into sharper focus as she realizes it was God's hand that was ultimately behind it all, that I rose to this power as the queen of Persia. She finally understood that God had raised her up for such a time as this. By declaring, if I perish, I perish, this was not a death wish. It was a profound understanding of the sovereignty of God. What Esther was saying when she said, if I perish, I perish, she was saying, the results are ultimately in God's hands. It's in God's hands. She didn't know how the king would react to her uninvited intrusion into his court. But she knew that God was in control. Esther was essentially declaring, my life is in God's hands. Therefore, I have nothing to fear, not even death itself. I'm not going to worry about what God has asked me not to worry about because that's his business. He is going to take care of that. You see, A belief in God's sovereignty is not a call to a reckless life. But it is a call to a bold and courageous life, knowing that we are in his hands. To acknowledge the sovereignty of God is not a guarantee that nothing bad will ever happen to us. But it's about doing the right thing in any situation you face and trusting God for the result that he is going to take care of the rest. Chuck Colson, who served as special counsel to President Nixon's administration, was once there at the White House in D.C. and looking at um, this young Princeton student who was protesting the possible reinstatement of a military draft. And this uh, student was holding up the sign that basically said, nothing is worth dying for. Colson, commenting on this protester's philosophy of life, said this, to many this seemed a noble celebration of life. But if nothing is worth dying for, is anything worth living for? If nothing in your life is worth dying for, Is anything worth living for? In other words, maybe the way I could say it is like this. In your own worldview, is there anything that you would die for? Now, I understand that this is very dramatic language. And living in the 21st century in America, you say, what are you even talking about here? Because the truth is, I don't know if it's going to be really common for any of us to face an actual life and death situation like Esther had to face. 
But this is what I would argue, is that in our lives, we're going to have to face some defining moments when we're going to have to have a moment of clarity to know what we're really living for. What the whole story of your life is climaxing to. What the point of your existence is. And it cannot be the American dream. It cannot be upgrading your house and the next dream car that you're going to buy when you hit that next salary pay grade. That cannot be the dream of God's people. Maybe it's going to be standing up for what you believe at work and you're going to have to say, maybe not if I perish, I perish, but if I get fired, I get fired. Maybe it's going to be sticking up for the rights of those who have no rights and being ostracized for it and says, if I look like a fool, I look like a fool. Maybe it's going to be the sacrifice of helping a friend who is truly in need and saying, if I lose all of that money, I lose all of that money. So be it. There are these kind of defining moments in our life where God is going to invite you to ask, what do you really believe about the journey that you're on? And to me, when I say that declaration, if I perish, I perish, it can look like heroism. It can look like fatalism. But what I see in that is faith in a God who loves us that gives me the courage to live a life like that because I know what Christ has done for me. And I know that in Jesus, I have everything I need. I am fully satisfied. And in that, I can live the kind of freeing, joyful life that the gospel invites me to. If I perish, I perish. As a believer, there are worse things that can happen to us than death. Amen? Because we're going to a better place. I have everything that I need in Christ. If you really want to find your life, you've got to lose it for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's not a death sentence. That's entering into life as God intended it for every one of us. Let's pray. I just want to invite you to come before God and maybe place your life on the exam table and think about the journey that sums up your life. And I don't know the story that you're telling about your own life, um, but when we look at the story of Esther, we see a woman that was swept up in all of this ridiculous drama of abuse and suffering and marginalization and somewhere in that she gets the winning lottery ticket and against all odds becomes the queen of Persia and in becoming queen she goes underground with her identity and hides who she truly is and now comes the defining moment of her life and she's about to walk away from it And so she needed a person like Mordecai to come to her and say, Esther, what are you doing? This is, this is the whole point of your existence. God raised you up for such a time as this. 
and you're about to walk away from this invitation to be used by him because you've grown pretty comfortable living in the palace of the king as the queen. And in the rebuke of her cousin, Esther finally comes to her senses and says, fast for me. And I too will fast. And I will join the company of fasters. And I will intercede. And I will be God's servant. And if I perish, I perish. Because God is in control of my life. And I wonder what are the defining moments that God is going to present in your life. When he's going to give you the moment of clarity. And say, what is your life all about? What is the purpose of your existence? What do I want of you? To believe that God is in control is to ask the next question, what is his mission? What is he about? What is he trying to do in my life and in my world around me? And how does he want to use me as his servant to accomplish that work? If I get fired, I get fired. If I lose friends, I lose friends. If I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed. If that money disappears, it disappears. But I have Christ. And in having Christ, I have everything I need. Would you just pray that for a couple of minutes as our worship team will lead us in a time of response through these songs? Let's pray.